Well, good evening. The text for um, this evening is found in the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 14. So I invite you to turn your copy of Scripture to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's on page 553 in the red Bibles in front of you. Um, you'll find your text there this evening. Uh, as by way of introduction, we are beginning a new summer series um, surveying some of the major themes of Ecclesiastes. Lord willing, over the course of the summer, we'll explore God's wisdom to us in four evening service uh, installments. We'll explore the meaning of life and work, uh, wealth and pleasure, and ultimately in the fear of the Lord alone. But tonight, I intend to lay the, the groundwork for the series in general and hopefully shed some light on yeah, why we need to hear the message of Ecclesiastes. Well, in the popular modern tale, the fictional character Neo is forced to make a decision. The decision before him will, will determine the course of his life. By no fault or desire of his own, he stands at the precipice of enlightenment and illumination. Neo stands before Morpheus. Perhaps you know this tale. And in Morpheus' outstretched hands are two pills, one in each hand, one blue and the other red. Take the blue pill, and Neo remains in the ignorant bliss of ordinary fabricated reality. On the other hand, take the red pill, and he awakens to his real condition. He gains the, the harsh and painful knowledge that comes with the sobering truth of the Matrix. And so he stands in a moment of dramatic hesitation, contemplating his fate. What will he choose? Will it be the mundane, monotonous, meaningless life subservient to the Matrix? Or will he choose the painful, difficult path of truth and reality? You see, Ecclesiastes is a little bit like that red pill. What Neo gained in taking that red pill was perspective. His perspective was elevated and the meaning of his life was categorically altered. The preacher of Ecclesiastes, he sets out to give you a perspective you do not naturally possess. He provides a strong dose of medicinal sobriety and clarity. Smelling salts for the spiritually apathetic. Ingest the truths that God lays out for you in these pages of Ecclesiastes, and you'll begin to see, in part, what God sees. You'll begin to hear with new ears the truth. Your mind will conceive the condition of your soul and this world apart from Christ, and your heart will be burdened with the perspective God extends to you in the hands of the preacher. A perspective that makes God holy, mighty, and sovereign. A good, and yet a big God. Is that the God you know? Is that the God that you follow? A God who brings sense and meaning to the futility of this life. And who will ultimately judge sin. You see, the call is extended, and the call is clear. Christian, hear Heed and hasten to obey the commands and the warnings of God through Ecclesiastes. Let's look together at chapter 1, verse 14. 
chapter 1, verse 14, reads, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. The main idea or argument uh, for us from this text this evening, which is in part also the main idea of the entire book, is, is simple and sweet. Life is meaningless without Jesus. Life, as we know it, is meaningless without Jesus. You see, verse 14 that we just read is the conclusion of a wise preacher, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, or in some translations, teacher, identifies himself in verse 1 as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And verses 12 through 18 give us a little bit more insight into who this man is. He is the king over Israel in Jerusalem, and a king who has, verse 16, acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and who had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And verse 17, who has explored both wisdom and madness and folly. And so he is a king of Israel with immense wisdom that at the time of, of writing would supersede all others before him. It is probable, although not explicit, that this king is none other than Solomon. In, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon pens wisdom literature, which is reflective in nature. That is, it's, it's different from the other genres that we have we've read even this year. It observes the, the results of God's works and tries to make sense of life. The king is intending to teach a godly perspective that leads to wise behavior among God's people. And as such, we should not read it as though his view is atheistic or pessimistically morbid or, or even skeptical of God. No, his view is Godward. Like Job, and yet he probes deep into the unpleasant recesses of human existence, asking hard questions about why things happen the way they do. And so King Solomon authoritatively states in verse 14, our text this evening, that in his God-given wisdom, he has seen and reflected on everything man has accomplished. Nothing has passed unreflected upon and on earth, and he concludes that all is vanity, like chasing or trying to, to catch the wind. And what follows, I want to draw out two brief observations and three applications this evening. Two observations and of this text and three applications, okay? Observation number one, life and its activities are futile because of sin. Life and its activities are futile because of sin. First, I think we need to understand, what's this word vanity that he speaks of? It isn't really a common term in our everyday uh, speech. The word translated as vanity here occurs 38 times in the book, so we can conclude that it's important for the preacher, for Solomon. It builds on his famous declaration that you've heard before, most likely, in verse 2. Look with me in verse 2. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, Vanity of, of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
This phrase is, is thematic for the entire book, and it shows up twice. It bookends the book. It shows up here in verse 2, and then it shows up again in chapter 12, verse 8, right prior to the epilogue, Solomon's last words. It is interesting to note that no English word encapsulates this word's meaning, and so it's, it's tough to interpret, which is why different translations take different approaches. It comes up as, as vanity, it comes up as futility, or even meaningless. And it has even more the nuanced sense of profitless, fruitless, and something that is fleeting, temporal, or even elusive. Why make much of this one word? Because if how you interpret this word helps you interpret this verse, which verse 2, which is thematic for the whole book. And if we get this not quite right or wrong, the rest of the book will follow in the steps. So literally, the word means vapor or, or mist, and it calls to mind the, the warm breath expended on a cold, dry day where the vapor is just there one second and the next second it's gone. So this is the meaning of the word, the word vanity. So, but then how does Solomon, the preacher, arrive at this bleak and sharp conclusion that all is, is vanity? The answer is in the previous section. The previous poem you see in verses 2 through uh, 11 is drawn from Solomon's observation of the monotony of a struck world corrupt by sin. He says in verse 3, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Verse 4, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Verse 5, The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. And verse 8, Because of all this, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You see, the king's observation here in these, in these verses is an earthly consideration that if you remove God heaven and hell and, e and eternal judgment, then everything left is meaningless. If God is not there in the equation, everything is left and is futile. If this world is in consideration, or sorry, if this world and its life are all there is, then existence is futile since nothing actually changes. That's what he says there. The natural cycle continues on and on, but he, and humans come and go like a vapor producing activity but no profit and no real gain. It's a world of zero net gain, where death always takes and life never produces. Sounds grim. And as an early uh, church father, Jerome, says it like this, What's more vain than this vanity, that the earth, which was made for humans, stays. But humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into the dust. What's more vain than this vanity that the earth which was made for humans stays, but the humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into the dust. You see, Solomon is describing a world broken as a result of sin. Genesis 3 records humanity departing from God's good and perfect plan. The departure introduced sin into God's perfect Eden, and that sin, it spread and corrupted all of creation. As a result... 
of Adam's sin, God cursed the world, which is why everything is broken. Sin marred the world such as it is broken and monotonous. And we all feel this frustration in some way, don't we? We've all experienced this sorrow in some way, haven't we? It's, um, it's paper cuts. It's that Lego you just had to step on. It's dishes and laundry that never end. It's the endless bills. It's, it's weeds that once pulled seem to multiply. It's angry traffic always around you. It's, it's pointless circles of emails never ending. It's that hurtful remark sent unexpected to you. It's nations rising against nations and, and war that always comes back. It's lies that propagate and truth is hidden. It's politicians backstabbing. It's good friends backstabbing. It's, it's why we hate what is different. Why does cancer still win? Why can't I get the body I want? Why, where does all my time go? Why does disease and global poverty and global hunger always so prevalent? Why can't anyone fix the injustice of this system? Why is another national or world leader letting us down? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why do we murder each other thinking that it will solve our problems? Why did that affair have to happen? Why did my baby have to die? Why does death come for everyone? Solomon concludes in all of this, verse 13, it is an unhappy business. And it's worse, actually. Verse 15 says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, you and I, we can't fix it. We can't fix this brokenness. But in a world where nothing is new, as Solomon observes, Christ is the new thing. The true son under this son that cataclysmically changes the world's order. Everything is now new in Christ. Where it was once monotonous and repetitive, Christ is that thing which is new. The preacher, Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament, and the whole world groans to find its fulfillment and satisfaction in. Isaiah 43, 19, the father says to Israel, speaking of what he's about to do, even in the new covenant, behold, I am doing a new thing. It springs forth now. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And John the Baptist proclaims what was crooked is now made straight in Christ. Paul also says to us in Romans, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The person who does not believe Jesus is your answer to this brokenness or to your sin you must consider that in all this mess, either there is a God who, up, who holds a standard up to which you will be measured on the final day, or all of this is meaningless. The late Tim Keller says it so well when he says, people think Christians are naive, but if your origin is insignificant, and if your destiny is insignificant, then have the guts to admit that your life is insignificant. And I'll add, without God. But if this is true, do not harden your heart. 
Turn from your sin of, of meaninglessness. Repent, trust, and believe on Christ for salvation from this meaningless life without God. The curse of futility and the frustration of endless pursuits is meant to drive you toward God, not away from him. So come to him. That's observation number one. Life and its activities are futile because of sin. Observation number two, and briefly, there is no satisfaction at the end of striving. There is no satisfaction at the end of striving. We saw that Solomon concludes it is vanity and a striving after the wind, as, but he says it as a king on a mission. He's on a quest. What is his quest? Well, looking back from the older, older age, verse 13 gives us the answer. Solomon says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. We see to seek and to search. These are words, uh, under these words stand a deep convictional pursuit of spiritual and intellectual understanding. The wisest king in Israel, outside of Christ, set out to understand the deepest nuances and meaning of life through the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. One commentator says it like this. Solomon was wiser than anyone else, and it did not bring meaning to his life. He also partied harder than anyone else, and that did not work either. And this is what he's saying. I tried it all. I lived life the right way, wisdom, and I lived life the wrong way, foolishness, and nothing brought meaning. It was like trying to, to grab the wind. First Kings 11 tells the sad tale. Solomon's heart was was filled with wisdom, but in the end, he did not produce meaning in his life. His pursuits of the gifts that God led him, uh, pursuits of the gifts that God gave, led him astray from God as a gift giver. As his heart was filled with idolatry, the nation became filled with idolatry. You see, as the king goes, so goes the nation. Brothers and sisters, we all do this, don't we? We strive for that next thing never satisfied with what God has already given us. We have spiritual amnesia to God's gifts minutes after he gives them, taking them for granted and acting as if we deserve them. The grass is always greener over there, striving for, yeah, for what is next. Solomon, he exposes the root of this idolatry, striving and consuming gifts as if they will satisfy our hearts. He pursued wisdom and folly and found the answers for us, so you don't have to. The scars of Solomon's life bear the truth. The gifts will not satisfy. Three brief applications for you tonight in light of, of this text. Number one, Christian, see the gifts of God as opportunities to praise him. See the gifts of God as opportunities to praise him. God loves to give children good gifts in accordance with his pleasing will. But we must remember that when we take a gift from God and make it into our, our God, lowercase g, it, is not only, it not only lets us down, it actually enslaves us. And we return seeking more in hopes of satisfaction that will never come. Learn from the preacher in Ecclesiastes and do not follow Solomon's path. 
somehow thinking that maybe it'll be different for you. It's not worth it. Solomon would say so. Yet the grace of Christ can break the chain of endless pursuits and help you see the gift as something to be enjoyed, not as an end in itself. But instead as an opportunity to, to relish a loving Father who gives good gifts. Finding your chief satisfaction, brother and sister, in God alone, through the grace given in Christ, will necessarily subordinate all other pleasures in their right place. In other words, it forces all other pleasures and pursuits underneath the lordship of God in your heart. As an example, next time you read and learn something, turn to God and praise him for the mind that he gave you that you can even acquire and categorize information. Next time you, you eat a meal, consider its tastes and textures. And praise a God that cares enough to make food pleasing to taste and provided it for you. Next time you see your, your child or a child, and you can praise God in your heart that, that he or she is, that he, that this is a God that creates life out of nothing. And next time you, that you laugh with your friends, take a moment and thank God for the gift of humor and laughter. You see, the idea is in so doing these things, we begin to cultivate a heart and a life that responds in praise to the gift giver instead of idolatry to the gift. So Christian, number one, see the gifts of God as opportunities to praise him. Number two, Christian, see the pain of life as an opportunity to believe him. Christian, see the pain of life as an opportunity to believe him. All of Ecclesiastes demonstrates that sometimes, as you know, the wicked receive what the righteous deserve. And sometimes hardship falls on the righteous. Many of you are, are, are in pain tonight. To those of you in, in pain and hardship, you already know well the truth that walking with God sometimes means crisis and hurt and hardship. When life is, is challenging and, and life is difficult and doesn't go the right way, often we, we want to know why things occur that, that way. This can be a great source of, of frustration, not only for Solomon, for, but for any of the Lord's disciples. And it calls, us, it calls us to patience and trust in both the sovereignty and the goodness of a good God. So Saint, let the psalmist in Psalm 9 soothe your soul when he says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who, who know your, your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his, his deeds, for he has avenged blood, and he who has avenged blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So Christians, see the pain of life as an opportunity to, to believe him. And lastly, Christian, see the mysteries of life as an opportunity to trust him. See the mysteries of life as an opportunity to trust him. This morning's sermon was so um, timely in this, uh, with this text even this evening. So, so fear of the unknown, it produces anxiety. We live in an age of instant knowledge and answers at our fingertips. And yet, we are still anxious. We're anxious about what we don't know and what we can't know. 
Because as, as knowledgeable as Google is, it can't tell me the mysteries of life that Ecclesiastes exposes. And so our anxiety remains. You see, the limitless pursuit of wisdom and knowledge will not satisfy the eternal longings of your soul. There are just some riddles and mysteries of life that are unattainable by the human intellect. And only God holds those mysteries. And for, for reasons unknown only to him, sometimes he withholds those from us. So our only response is to say with the psalmist again in Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Christian, see the mysteries of life as an opportunity to trust him. In conclusion, church, without God, we live our lives in vain. We're kind of like hamsters stepping into the endlessly spinning hamster wheel of life and getting nowhere. And without Christ, we're like thankless children on Christmas morning. We worship the gifts rather than the gift giver. But may the grace of God help us to, to hear, to heed, and to hasten to obey the wisdom of the preacher in Ecclesiastes tonight and in the following night's evenings of, of this summer series. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you that you hold all the mysteries of this world, that nothing is too great for you, nothing is too, is too lofty for you. And, and one day we will be, yeah, we will know as we are fully known. And one day all will be made clear. And we, we declare this evening, Lord, that we love you. We want to follow you as a church. We want to, we want to please you in our obedience and in our discipleship. Help us, Lord. Oh, help us. Give us grace to be able to, to, to know, to believe, and to trust the times when the mysteries are, are ever prevalent and the frustrations of this life dig in. Give us hope, Lord, in Christ, in Christ alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.